Poet William Henley famously thanked, whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. He ended his blasphemous poem with this flourish. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Henley's poem asserts that chance and fate are the only determining factors in our stories. Yet this does not stop him from taking a swing at Christ by dismissing the narrow gate and the scroll of judgment. But it's this assertion that he makes, I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul. It ably expresses one of man's fundamental convictions about life. We're born with this twisted sense that we control our own lives. I have the power of self-determination. And when this illusion is exposed as nonsense, we blame people or we blame fate. And then we naturally put our trust in some power figure or other to fuel the delusion that I am the master of my fate. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was the gold standard of such a delusional sense of control and self-determination. And I say was, not simply because Nebuchadnezzar is dead and gone, but I say was because of Daniel chapter 4. And I invite you to find Daniel chapter 4 in the scriptures as we look at this important narrative of Nebuchadnezzar's transformation as he came to know the living God. Daniel chapter 4, in the first three verses, we read Nebuchadnezzar's declaration. He says this, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. This is a stunning statement in the book, and there's nothing in the book that prepares us for this statement on the part of Nebuchadnezzar. This is the king, remember, that's the powerful king, Nebuchadnezzar, the king who has crushed Israel's army with his army. He has taken vessels from the temple and displayed them as spoils of conquest over Yahweh. And here he is now praising God. This is Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold in the great image that we saw in chapter 2, the ultimate ruler. And as we look at Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar has been impressed with Yahweh, but he's remained more impressed with himself. So verses 1 through 3 are written after the events that will be recorded below, and Nebuchadnezzar will now give us the backstory to this stunning statement of praise to the one true and living God. In verses 4 through 18, we see Nebuchadnezzar describing a second dream following upon the one in chapter 2 we looked at last week. Here he describes to the wise men of Babylon the dream that he has had. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. 
As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. You remember in chapter 2, he demanded that they tell him what his dream was. They were not able to do it, and so obviously were not able to interpret it. But here their humiliation deepens. They cannot interpret the dream even when they're told what it is. He has described his dream to these wise men of Babylon. In verse 8 and following, we see him describe his dream to the wise man of Yahweh, Daniel. Verse 8 reads, At last Daniel came in before me. Let me stop there just for a moment. It's almost humorous. It's like finally Daniel showed up. Daniel was delayed for some reason. It's not described to us as to why here in the text. But his delay puts the folly of the Babylonian wise men on clear display. So verse 8 again, at last Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying... By, the spirit of the holy gods. It probably just means something along the lines that he saw Daniel as uniquely gifted and knew that he was an interpreter of dreams that were conveying divine truth. So verse 9, he says, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The spirit of the holy gods, this one who knows God and knows the truth that's being conveyed in these dreams, the uh, great king Nebuchadnezzar knows Daniel this way and so is confident that he'll be able to tell him what the dream meant. Verse 10, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. Let's stop there for a moment. While a tall statue was the central feature of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, here it's a tree. In chapter 2, we saw there that statue with Nebuchadnezzar as the head of gold. But here there is a tree that is central to this dream. Verse 11. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, that is a, an angel, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. So the tree is cut down and all who found comfort in its shade are scattered. However, 
This great destruction is followed with verse 15 in this word of hope. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amidst the tender grass of the field. The tender grass of the field means it's a well-watered area, and this metal band around the tree will protect the stump, protect the bark that is on the stump, and the root system below still has life in it. So there's an idea here of the preservation of the trunk and its life. But verse 15 continues, Let him be wet with the dew of heaven, let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the field. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. We notice here the subtle shift to him. That is, the tree represents a man. And this idea of spending time in the field like an animal is actually a condition that is known today as lycanthropy. It's a rare mental disorder in which a person thinks he's an animal and acts like an animal. And we would ask then, why this horrifying discipline? Why this? Verse 17 explains, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, this angelic messenger, the decision by the word of the holy ones, these angels, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. The lowliest, those even who are brought down and downtrodden. That's the opposite of political theory in every kingdom on the planet then and now. It's the great who are lifted up. It's the great who rule. But God says, I can even put the lowly on the throne. I am that sovereign over all that comes to pass. In verse 18, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able. For the spirit of the holy gods is in you. He knew that he was in touch with the true God and he knew that he could deliver the meaning of this dream by which God was speaking truth to Nebuchadnezzar's heart. So beginning at verse 19, Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel explains, verse 19, Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed. For a while, his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. 
And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation. Verse 24. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. That is, you won't go inside your palace. Seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So the metal band wrapped around the stump preserves the life of the tree. If animals eat the bark, the tree will die. If you would shave off the bark at the bottom of that stump, uh, it would die. If you took an ax to it and cut, cut away in that way, the tree will not live, but keep the bark intact and the shoots can spring up from the life that's in the roots and the tree may yet live. That's the idea here. And notice here in verse 26, the connection to verse 17. Here is the whole point. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom and gives it to whom he will. This is the point of the discipline. That will come now to King Nebuchadnezzar. And verse 26, it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. So there was a future that was good for Nebuchadnezzar, but there was going to be this season of profound discipline as he was humiliated in a way such as perhaps no king has ever been humiliated this great, powerful man. Therefore, now at this point, verse 27, Daniel moves from explanation to exhortation. Verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Let my counsel. This is coming from a captured slave, from a, a young man from a vanquished nation speaking to the most powerful king on planet earth before his throne. Listen to what I have to say to you, king. Daniel assures him there's no good outcome here. God's hand of discipline is going to fall upon Nebuchadnezzar. All Daniel can say is it's better to delay the inevitable than to hasten it. That's my counsel to you, king. So Nebuchadnezzar was impressed with God, but he saw no reason up to this point to submit to the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar still thought of himself as high and lifted up. And so Daniel just speaks the word of honesty here to the king and says, break away from your sins, O king, in order to delay the day that God breaks you. 
but that day, I'm afraid, will come. In verses 28 and following, Nebuchadnezzar suffers the profound humiliation that has been prophesied in the dream. Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Babylon was indeed the most dominant empire on earth. And the city, the ancient city that Nebuchadnezzar had built up was the most magnificent on the planet, known yet to this day for its hanging gardens, which were a wonder. As he walks on that flat roof of his palace overlooking this magnificent city, he says, in a sense, I am master of my fate. I am in control of my world. Well, God does not even let Nebuchadnezzar finish his speech. Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Master of your own fate, I will take your kingdom from you, and there will be nothing that you can do about it. You, King Nebuchadnezzar, will be helpless. You will not be wearing that wonderful robe that you now wear. That crown that sits on your head will be gone. You will not be on your throne, in your palace, eating your wonderful food and enjoying the power of your kingdom. You will be driven out like an animal living outside. Now notice here in verse 32... And connect that again back to verse 25 and then to verse 17. We see here verse 17, verse 25, verse 32. This is the point that God is driving home. And that this entire chapter repeats these three times because it is what is all significant. That we would know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. God alone reigns sovereign. And this he will teach now to Nebuchadnezzar. And so in verse 33 again, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. In lycanthropy, this is the subset of boanthropy, where a person uh, believes that they are a cow or an ox. But the prophecy of the metal band around the tree was also fulfilled. So Nebuchadnezzar is humbled in such a way that is hard to even comprehend 
acting like an animal outside, having lost all of his glory. But again, that band around the tree, that prophecy as well is fulfilled as we see in verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. I lifted my eyes to heaven. The most intense insanity Nebuchadnezzar ever experienced was on the day when he looked over Babylon and said, look what I have done by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. To crawl around outside thinking he was a cow was less insane. Eating grass, mooing, was an improvement for Nebuchadnezzar. And to this point in time, Nebuchadnezzar had never been more sane than when he looked not to himself, but looked upward to a glorious God. His dominion, his kingdom will endure forever. I, the gold standard of kings on earth, I will soon be dust. But God's kingdom will never fall. He is the most high God who rules over all of the kingdoms of man, over all of the glory of man. His glory is supreme. Nebuchadnezzar now saw clearly. And so we see here his repentance and his restoration. Continuing here in verse, th uh, verse 34, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can stay his hand. That is, no one can stop God from doing what he chooses to do. This is more than saying every once in a while God will decide to do something and you can't stop him. This is to say that God ordains all that comes to pass. And no one can get in the way of that. No one can ask, what have you done? That is, no one can question what God chooses to do. We may question whether or not he's good. We may question whether or not God is wise. But in doing that, we are fools in our pride. No one can ultimately do that. God always does what is right. And he always acts according to his purpose. And all that comes to pass, he ordains for the ultimate glory of his name and good of his people. Nebuchadnezzar is coming to understand that and perceive that this is who God indeed is. Verse 36, and at the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. He's not lost his way in verse 36, speaking words of pride now all of a sudden. These are words of reality. Remember that the vision in chapter 2 pictured Nebuchadnezzar as the head of gold. He was a grand king and his empire was majestic in many ways. 
He's speaking the truth, but now he does so with the right humility and the understanding that God reigns supreme. Verse 37, so he says, here's the conclusion. I now, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Not only is he able to humble, he will. And scripture makes this very clear. If he does not do so in this life, then he will do so in the next. Every self-promoting fool, every proud rebel against God's sovereign control will bow in abject humility before Christ someday. As will those who fancy that Jesus can be ignored in this life or in the next. And so we're reminded here in Daniel chapter 4 that from birth, pride is deeply rooted in our identity as human beings. We don't have the glory of Nebuchadnezzar, but if we were given that glory, the pride that is now in our heart would just find a new way of expression. Pride does not look the same in everyone, nor is every person, does every person display pride in singular manifestation. There is the arrogant, self-important, boastful pride as we think of Nebuchadnezzar on his palace rooftop looking over Babylon and praising his name. But there's also the quiet, seething pride of hurt feelings. There's the pride of self-centeredness where we simply don't think about others. We see everything from our perspective. There's the pride, as Pallison puts it, that towers and the pride that cowers. In a thousand prideful ways, we operate as if there is no God who rules from heaven's throne and as if we are the masters of our fate. Daniel 4 is a breath of fresh reality for our souls. We're reminded here that God rules the kingdom of man with sovereign authority. He raises up and he puts down. We never were, we are not now, nor ever will be the master of our fate or the captain of our souls. And we should remember this, certainly now, as our nation's economic power is smashed to the ground like a fallen idol, as a vibrant economy is overwhelmed by unemployment suddenly, as scientists have no timely solutions and governors no easy answers to combat a microscopic virus. But make no mistake in all of this. America is a proud nation, perhaps in the best sense of the word at times, but also we are a proud nation in the absolute worst sense of the word. And make no mistake, we will be utterly humbled in the end. And so it's a good time, as always, to check our hearts. Do we trust in the United States of America? Do we put our trust in money? Do we put our trust in a medical system? To trust in systems and securities of man 
that will just fall and crumble in the end anyway. It's utter insanity. I have no idea how soon I make no predictions, but the fate of so-called masters of their own fate is always humiliation and destruction. This nation that we now inhabit, like Babylon of old, like Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome to follow, so our nation will be humbled. Our leaders will be humbled. Our powers will be broken. And one day America will be blown away like the dust of the statue in Daniel chapter 2. Now for those of us who have been redeemed by Christ, our hope then is not in this world. Our trust is not in this country. Our confidence is not in ourselves or the systems that seek to control our world for us. Our hope is in the crucified, risen, reigning, returning Lord Jesus Christ, whose rule will never end and whose kingdom cannot fall. So if all around our soul gives way, he is the solid rock on which we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. If I speak to you today as one who has not come to put his or her saving trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. If I speak to you and honestly, the truth is you're fearful or you're discouraged, you're distraught. I say to all of us, even those who are confident and maybe particularly to those of us with the confidence that really evidences our own pride, the call here today from Daniel 4 is to humble ourselves, to come in dependent faith on Christ alone, our solid rock and our eternal Savior. His kingdom is forever. Those who are part of that kingdom now with the hope and ultimately in the very presence of our Savior, that is where our soul finds its hope and stay. Seek Christ as your solid foundation. He alone is the Most High God, and His kingdom will never end.